Welcome to Japan on Fire 25 on Hideo Gosha's Free Outlaw Samurai. We enter a new series here, and mostly in terms of uh, us and uh, us as viewers and our viewing habits, uh, a new world as envisioned by the chosen director of this series. That means I'm mostly new to this director. Hideo Gosha saw samurai cinema and cinema in general and its world in a more dirty, gritty and cynical way, starting with 1964's Free Outlaw Samurai. And I'm gonna be with me with his monkey and his hairpin ready to go, and hence the in-jokes uh, from the cinema we just watched, they start early. But with me regardless is V-Cinema's Coffin Johnson. How are you, buddy? Hello, Kenneth, and uh, let's uh, date this podcast once again. Happy Halloween 1937. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, this will be out sometime in the spring, judging by my editing habits and I sit on shows. But uh, yep, happy Halloween. It's spooky Halloween watching black and white movies about samurais. Oh. So there we are. The, uh, question off the bat, lightning fire around here. Were you a fan um, prior of uh, Gosha? So were you just mildly familiar with his cinema like I was? Yeah, I can't say I was a fan. Of course, I've seen uh, several of his films, many of them by accident. You know, it's like one of those things where you watch a film and then you check the uh, the DVD case and you're like, oh, this is a Gosha film. I should have maybe known that, you know, that kind of thing. There was a hairpin. I should have known it was him. <laughs> you're right. I, I've always had some uh, some sort of some form of respect for his uh, for his cinema, even though, um, like I said, I didn't necessarily seek it out actively because uh Everything I have seen of his has been pretty solid. I suppose uh, they never like uh, landed in your lap as as naturally as maybe Kurosawa's movies, right? I mean, I have a feeling that his movies never like played extensively and like was there in the video store once upon a time next to all of uh, you know Free Samurais and whatever, uh, Free Samurais, Seven Samurais and whatever. Like it always seems like his movies were a little bit more buried. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's mainly the, I guess you call it the Kurosawa effect, where, you know, he was basically Kurosawa, that is, the the master of the the samurai drama. You know, naturally, a lot of the directors who came after him, or, you know, I guess you could say his contemporaries, but those who, you know, did make films after uh, Kurosawa's, you know, famous ones like uh, Seven Samurai and Rashomon, you know, they were basically kind of, having to, you know, walk in Kurosawa's footsteps. Mm-hmm. You know, likewise, you know, the availability of of the films kind of reflect that as well because even, you know, back in the 80s, you could pretty easily find Kurosawa films, uh, you know, Gosha films, uh, for example, and other directors of that sort, you know, even Zatoichi films, uh, mm-hmm. for example, were not all that easy to find and you'd have to either bootleg or you know be a tape trader to get some of those things mm-hmm. in which case they wouldn't necessarily be you know um subtitled or they'd be subtitled in french or something like that so you'd have to get by with you know what you got yeah i mean i've only seen prior to the series i think i've seen probably one now and it's the one we'll cover eventually um, and i always confuse if it's known both as tenshu and something else I'm blanking on the other thing, but it's the Shintaro Katsu movie. Um, yeah, uh, Stokiri. Yeah. 
And uh, I remember seeing like a Laserdisc rip of that, which seemed to be originally subtitles or a VHS rip in widescreen. So that was one that reached some kind of English language territory, US or maybe UK, who knows. But that, that was like, whoa, this is interesting. Right. It's worth mentioning. I think this is probably going to come out in later episodes that, you know, Gauchel is not just a samurai film director. And I don't think any film director was just a, a samurai director. You know, I mean, although he specialized in that, you know, that being the, the genre of the day, so to speak, you know, that was uh, popular, you know, you know, again, thanks to uh, Kurosawa's uh, great works. You know, Gosha, actually, I think he kind of finds his voice more when you get to his non-samurai uh, films, which I'm sure we'll get to a few of uh, in uh, later episodes. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, we, we definitely will, because I want to create as an overview without talking of every movie in depth. But, but it is important indeed to touch upon what makes a, to sound a little bit highfalutin and pretentious, pretentious, but to what makes his like identity, what creates his identity, and therefore you can't just take a snapshot of one genre if several others are available and noteworthy in some shape or form. Whether, whether masterpieces or not, that'll be my new experiences uh, and all of that. Uh, but okay, let's uh, rock and roll some brief contact information before we do uh, the content of this episode and the movie reviews. And uh, this is Japan on Fire on the podcast on Fire Network. On our website, you'll find this show and all our other assorted shows on Hong Kong, Korean cinema, Slicy Cinema, and even Godfrey Ho Cinema. And you'll find bonus episodes every now and again on our site, podcastonfire.com. Uh, email us if you have any questions or feedback. We would love to hear from you if uh, you're familiar with Gosha. So, uh, and even if you're not, then email us if you um, if you have any uh, feedback on this series. Uh, Podcast on fire at googlemail.com. On our website, there's some handy buttons to our social media or Facebook, which will lead you to our discussion group and our Twitter, as well as our iTunes feed that you can rate and uh, you can rate our show shows and subscribe to the to the feed. And you can stream us on Stitcher Radio, either on the website or the applications available on Google Play or the Apple App Store. And I write about uh, mostly Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies over at SoGoodReviews.com and my small video hub is sleazykvideo.com and my twitter handle is at so good reviews and that uh, gets us to v cinema for those who are not familiar with v cinema and how can you not be give them a rundown of uh, what's contained within the url yes uh okay we're located at uh, v cinema show that's s-h-o-w dot com and we cover a wide variety of uh Asian cinema, as well as a wide variety of genres and topics and whatnot. Although, admittedly, our site is mainly about film review. Uh, we do have some uh, feature articles. Always hoping for more, but uh, speaking of which, if you're interested in um, contributing to vCinema, you can always get in touch with us. Uh, there is contact information on the website. But uh, as far as other ways to um, keep up with our um, our site, uh, we are on Twitter at uh, the cinema show that again is s-h-o-w and we're also on facebook and uh, we'll provide the links to all of those relevant social media and uh, before we get going let's uh, provide you listeners with a rundown of uh, what's to come during this episode and with this being the start of the series where well, we definitely have a few segments at hand so if you want to jump ahead to any of them if you want to jump ahead to the relevant reviews follow the running times in the show post or tap the show art in the iphone podcast applications um, 
application uh, after you download it, which show uh, to reveal those uh, running times. But what's contained within is the Hideo Gosha's Gosha biography up until a certain logical point in his career. I mean, it's uh, it's a long career, so we're not going to go and talk of all the various stages of his career that happened after the movies covered in this episode. So it's kind of a, a story, the story so far, dealio, in terms of his biography. So we're leaving you with a cliffhanger, essentially, but nothing nothing too tragic. I don't think so, anyway. Uh, this will be followed by our quick reviews of his movies Samurai Wolf 1 and 2, and we conclude with the lengthier main review of Free Outlaw Samurai. And why we're doing quick reviews, by the way, is that, uh, in a way, we want to touch upon a heftier amount of movies without getting bogged down in a ton of, in so to say, in-depth, lengthier reviews. So we have some quick takes prepared for you that actually are movies that were made after Free Outlaw Samurai, but uh, we'll get to that. Let's do the biography up to a certain point then. And uh, as the extensive piece on Midnight Eye, which is midnighteye.com, I believe. And if it's not, then I'll uh, I'll provide the link in the show post anyway. Gosha has been overlooked in the West due to, among other things, very sparse promotion. That's uh, sort of a quote from their piece. And despite festival and cinema play, he never really broke through in his samurai films, for instance, instance, tended to be overlooked in comparison to the attention that Akira Kurosawa was rightly receiving. And it's uh, very much uh, true the lack of promotion and availability that is for Gosha's latter decades of work in the 80s and 90s. And uh, it seems like you could maybe argue that his uh, work is leaning towards obscure or even just even unfairly um undervalued uh, you know and uh it, i mean they, they, he never obviously received any um like if we got any japanese movies it was most likely kurosawa and i don't think any gosha movies ended up on the video shelves uh, back in the day so uh, but, but even at home in japan he was at least once dismissed in a 1969 article as a not very intelligent director so nice to hear that i mean you're climbing a hill when you get to hear that but maybe he was if he heard it maybe he was uh encouraged to okay i'm i'm gonna prove that i am something i i am a director of intelligence so, so there it is going back to the beginning born in 1929 in the asakusa district of tokyo i'll stop you right there have you been there, John? You've been a resident of Tokyo for a number of years. Yes. Um, actually, I love the Saksa district uh, of, uh, of Tokyo. Right now, it's more of a uh, it's more of a touristy type of area. But uh, you know, back then when uh, Gosha was a, a child, it was uh, called, I guess, the downtown area, kind of the rougher part of town, so to speak. If you're a San Franciscan, maybe you can say you know it's like the Tenderloin district of Tokyo back then. Or if you're maybe a New Yorker, it's more like the the Brooklyn type of area, the kind of more you know Lower East Side that type of uh, that type of place. You know that was where the ruffians hung out, so to speak. I, 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 do you have such an area in your town? Uh, I know it's a small town. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's sort of even. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, if you go to Stockholm, then I suppose uh, the biggest cities or right. Gothenburg, I suppose there are some. Uh, some different areas akin to that, so I don't have a good comparison. So there it is. But he was born there, and uh, he was sort of, you know, stemming from the lower ranks of Japanese society. I mean, Gosha was more of a downtown kid, uh, walking alongside a world of card players, yakuza, prostitutes, and things like that. And his father even worked as a street peddler and bodyguard in the red light district. And it seemed the young Gosha grew up learning. Uh, 
of life in a physical, philosophical, and even violent manner in order to sort of make a path for himself in life. And not, not, not he wasn't like, the piece never gave the impression that he was leaning towards a criminal life. But uh, if honor was in need to be defended, then it would happen violently. And uh, as, uh, as Midnight Eye describes, uh, quote, his youthful manliness can be traced through his films whether they are proactive or even inward-looking characters. Uh, and uh, as the article said, Gosha's view of life might not have been intellectual, but it was certainly infused by Japanese feelings and emotions, and maybe even a universal feeling of loneliness and sadness. Fast forward a little bit to more of his teenage years. During wartime, at a young age of 15 or 16, Gosha joined the Naval Aviator Preparatory Course, basically in a program training kamikaze pilots uh, but he never had to perform that final deadly flight uh, after well, that training after the war ended he went into economics studies and was subsequently hired by the radio station nippon also working as a reporter and a producer and after racking up experience he was recruited by fuji television in 1957 leading to being a part of a directing team dubbed the star directors and I'm such a poor researcher, I didn't even like type that into Google to <laughs> so, sort of find out who are the other star directors at Fuji Television. We can maybe find out by the next episode. Yeah, exactly. So there, there it is. Uh, he worked anyway and honed his skills uh, directing crime and social dramas, including some featuring a young Tetsuro Tamba, the lead of Free Outlaw Samurai. And he was even rewarded, awarded rather, by the Ministry of Culture for his adaptation of the story of Miyamoto Musashi in 1962. And I'm only familiar with uh, that character because of the Toshiro Mifune movie trilogy that he starred in. So, But uh, there's been a couple of other adaptations of uh, of that character. Is that a historical character, by the way? Or is it a fictional character? Yes, it's historical. So, yeah, several, several adaptations of that uh and, you know, some of them very direct and some of them, you know, more stylistic, a little farther away from uh, the actual story. Is the Mifuni one considered that's the standard of uh, realism and accuracy? Or is that like a very pop culture, so entertaining uh, version of it? Uh, yeah, I would say it's a, it was the standard. Um, like I said, there are other versions and you know, it's always that, you know, your mileage may vary. But, you know, it's kind of like if you don't really you're not really interested in that one then you know you're probably not going to be interested in the story to begin maybe a good idea the criterion originally put that out on laserdisc and dvd and now blu-ray they sort of more maybe accessible miyamoto mushashi stories uh, there there is but uh, the year after in 1962 marked a significant significant year with the creation of the tv series free outlaw samurai it was originally conceived as a modern-day crime drama with a realistic tint to violence, but a TV colleague advised Gosha and, to, and suggested to relocate it to the Chambara genre instead. Thus, it was changed and it made an impact in uh, TV land with its anti-heroes and memorable action scenes at the forefront. And as Midnight Eyes piece says, Gosha introduced what would become a distinctive trademark of his own, an animalistic vision of life, and human and beings, end quote. And to further highlight this point, I suppose, Gosha dubbed his tree of samurai the Sambiki no Samurai, which I believe is the Japanese title of the feature. Yes. Uh, he he dubbed, them, uh, dubbed them that. That's translated as free samurai dogs or beasts. Uh, would, would that be correct, you think, John? Uh, yeah, that's pretty good. 
in English it sounds a little clumsier, <laughs> but uh, you know, Japanese, you know, it sounds a little more like rough, you know. And the free outlaw samurai train kept rolling as the series was adapted into a Chochiko studio produced big screen version of the same name, the one we're covering this episode, gaining maybe not a name at the time, but certainly over time it is quite regarded. It was reportedly somewhat of a hit, which reflects that, that it didn't blow up and change the game completely. But uh, it was noted to some degree, and Gosha was now a sought-after director, making further movies for... Chochiko, such as Sword of the Beast, which I believe is the year after, but he worked for other studios as well, Toho, Toei, Daiei, resulting in movies such as Samurai Wolf 1 and 2, that was for Toei, and other movies such as The Secret of the Urn and Hitokiri, that's the other title of Tenshu, Tenshu Hitokiri. Uh, actually, frustration on another, on another project uh, having to do with not being given enough creative freedom led to the mentioned and quite appreciated Samurai Wolf movies. Uh, but as much as that, those movies and The Secret of the Urn are single out, they did frustrate Gosha as well because they were not critical or commercial hits. Uh, that Samurai Wolf was reportedly, and maybe it's super evident, I haven't seen Jojimbo, um, a reworking of uh, the Jojimbo story and or the Sanjuro storylines. Uh, I, I, you know, I suppose when something is a hit... You use a template for other movies, you know, uh, it's not like it's uh, sacred ground to, for Kurosawa to only deal in. Like, uh, so I'm supposed to have 50 ripoffs after that, mo- those movies were hit. And I think that's kind of almost the basis of part of Gosha's uh, career is that, uh, in a way, maybe he wasn't consciously trying to chase any art directors, but he was kind of put into these projects. I don't even want to say he was put into them because that sounds like the studio forced him or something. Mm -hmm. But in any case, he was involved with these projects that revolved around, you know, what was popular in the day, which was samurai films, which was, you know, the numbers, seven samurai, three, you know, outlaw samurai, that kind of thing. But, um, you know, a lot of our directors and a lot of really other good directors that were at least equal to, if not better, uh, greater than, Gosha were also stuck in that same cycle, so to speak. Definitely. And uh, as for Samurai Wolf, uh, one and two, these movies contain spaghetti western influences as well. It fits the timeline of the Leone broke out over in Italy. And uh, therefore, we're stopping the story of our director for now to quickly. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, what a quick cliffhanger. You bet you can't wait. What happened next? Who died? <laughs> You'll find out next week. Uh, but uh, we're going to talk. It sounds quick- like clickbait, actually. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I don't want to be, I, I don't want to be that. You won't believe what happens next. He did. Japanese film fans hate him. <laughs> what happens next will blow your mind. <laughs> what happens next, though, will maybe blow your mind or not, but we are going to quickly talk of, uh, said, Samurai Wolf 1 and 2 movies and uh, since I've been speaking for a while let's head over to John for your quick takes of uh, Samurai Wolf 1 to uh, for starters and I'll do mine afterwards so the floor is yours uh, what do you think of it? I thought uh, this was a solid I don't want to call it series because it's only two films I definitely wouldn't call it a diptych or anything but it's, uh, it's a solid couple of films um, and it, I think it was kind of uh, obvious that uh, they were trying to make a series out of this yeah, yeah, it really stopped it too, didn't it? I mean, it, right. it, it felt like they can make 30 of these, I suppose. They, they, they look cheap enough and they're super short as well, so they must be quick to produce. Right, and the, and the actor 
pretty charismatic. But I think that's kind of what the problem is that, uh, you know, if you take a series like Zatoichi, you know, Zatoichi has, you know, a very charismatic character and has, you know, kind of a gimmick to, you know, he's blind, but he can fight too, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. I don't think Samurai Wolf 1 or 2 have quite the same uh, charisma. The actor himself, you know, doesn't have, while he is, you know, very... um, a handsome fella. Isao Natsuyage, just to name, name, give him a name, name check. Yeah, he just actually he just passed away about a year ago. But um, but anyway, so he's not quite as charismatic, you know, as a as a lead as as you'd want possibly. And the stories, you know, are maybe not quite as good. But I thought the two films were really solid, uh, you know, just on their own. If you if you try not to position them as being like oh this is going to be the next great series or something like that you know i, I could definitely tell at this point that um that Koshiro was still influenced by uh, directing tv because there's a lot of moments that are very tv like um the use of freeze frame slow motion the use of music like when he put in music when he took out music mm-hmm. i was mentioning to you that you know the dutch tilts the dutch angles those um you know, several shots with those in them. And, um, you know, at the time, at TV, that was kind of big, you know. Was... Like I was expecting you to sort of say that it was static because it was TV, but Japanese TV sounds at that time sort of active, stylishly active, rather than just line up a couple of people in a room and talk for 10 minutes, like because... Yeah, I think because a lot of the early directors either were already film directors or... or they would eventually become film directors or at least they were trained in that style so i think they were a little more stylistically minded rather than you know tv directors now who kind of come up becoming uh uh, studying you know tv directing or communication it's just in general and they conform more to a um a style that's more contemporary for television rather than uh you know, going for something that's really stylish or, you know, and of course, you know, just the fact that they, they are not working independently, you know, the, I mean, very few TV directors, Japanese TV directors, excuse me, are probably allowed very much power. They're just kind of like, just put out the product and hopefully we'll watch it and we'll hire you again, that kind of thing, you know, so that's the kind of order I'm sure that they're given. So you don't get a lot of, um, room for style, but, uh, back then, you know, you did, you definitely did. And like I said, these, those guys already had already come from a more creative style background. And that, that happened pretty much through the, I would say, probably mid-80s or so. Because of, you know, I watch, uh, my, my wife really loves uh, 70s uh, Japanese television. And sometimes I watch with her and I could still see those stylish flourishes uh, that you could see in film at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of agree. I like the first one better than the second one. The, the second Samurai Wolf uh, 4 was kind of weak, to be honest. But it, it, it's like decent little slices of samurai action, which that's what they are. They're emphasizing slice. One is only 70 minutes long. The other one is 68. But, you know, if you make a basic and brief little tale, then that can be effective. And uh, the first one is, it's a sort of small, stylish, violent little story. Uh, it won't rival the big genre guns, and I've not seen them all. But I know this won't be lifted up to super classic status, uh, you know, alongside the best of Akira Kurosawa. It, it's, go- it, it's good, it's decent, but it's not uh, deserving of a 
of uh, something higher, I think. Uh, and being from 1966, the Spaghetti Western influence, I think, is whether he meant it or not, it shows up definitely more in the first, and especially immediately. Like, the opening sequence is just pure Leone. With, uh, Leone liked not only his stylish flourishes, you know, shooting vistas, he liked people eating on screen a lot. <laughs> like, close-ups of people yeah. eating, and that's what we see Natsuyagi sort of do in the opening credits to the first one. So I thought, like, Leone, check. <laughs> like, uh, the, the soundtrack sounds a little bit like Morricone, check. Plus the fact that he's just, that character is just basically a man with no name. You know, because even the name that he has, um, I already forget the name. Chiba? It's like, yeah, right, Kiba Okami no It's totally a fake name. You know, it's just like um, Tsubaki Sanjuro from the Sanjuro um, film. You know, that's just a uh, like a placeholder name, you know, uh, uh, in fact, if you th- if you remember the Sanjuro film, um, I know some of the audience will. It, he basically just chooses his name by looking at. He just happens to see um, a flower, uh, the the tsubaki, which I can't remember in English what it's called. But anyway, he just kind of takes a name out of nowhere, you know, mm-hmm. basically saying that he's a man with no name. But it, it's likewise the same with yeah, Kiba um, Okami Nosuke. It's just it's like oh, because I'm tough like a wolf, you know. It's just kind of yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's sort of half on the nose, I suppose. Like, they draw comparisons to, it, like, he looks like a bit untidy and uh, sort of hairy as well. So they even, right. I, I think they even say, oh, you feel like a wolf, you look like a wolf, because he meets a blind woman in the first one and stuff like that. So, right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's got fairly compelling, dirty, gritty, sort of dusty, uh, black and white, um, atmosphere here, shot in black and white, uh, the the stylish flourishes uh, that I, I didn't know of his sort of uh, trademark styles to check off his trademarks, Gosha. So those slow motion death sequences uh, where the audio is muted, they're, they're kind of eerie feeling and uh, quite compelling. They're, at that point, they're not at every in every instance violent, but it certainly is a violent movie. Like what you don't get in most Kurosawa movies I've seen is this uh, sort of splatter like violence, <laughs> but uh, in this one. That's what Gosha sort of gives us, uh, these, um, you have slow motion sequences where you hear, only hear like slashes and people sort of falling over. But then you got genuine black and white blood spurts here. And, uh, don't know if that was sort of his style only or he, that there was like this group of directors who favored, uh, you know, the blood soaked, <laughs> blood soaked version of the Chambara movie. Uh, but, uh, that's uh, certainly just a minor observation of me. You know, there's certainly moments of blood in Kurosawa's films, uh, at least in that era. Um, you know, I, I'm, for example, thinking Throne of Blood. You know, I guess you know that should give you a hint there. I I do remember one scene that's particularly bloody um, that uh, someone gets executed, and you know, you get that big spray of blood over you know this uh, white wall, sort of you know, a la Argento sort of type of thing. You know, um, you know, certainly if you compare. Uh, Kurosawa's work with uh, Gosha's work, it's, uh, yeah, you would think that Gosha is very much more, I don't want to say gore oriented, but he really wants to show violence for what it is, you know, and the effects of it, that kind of thing. For the day, that was maybe, maybe he's a little bloodier than normal, although I think this was, you know, again, about mid 60s. So I think that directors around that time were kind of making that transition. I would say almost say that, you know, Gosha was maybe part of this sort of bridge between the more formalistic samurai films that, you know, that we would know from the 50s to the more 
exploitation oriented ones like Lone Wolf and Cub, for example. I'm them being, you know, still samurai films, but they do focus a little bit more on the on the violence um rather than the you know, human interactions and politics and things like that, that uh, the older films did. So I would say that these films sort of bridge that gap. And it's kind of interesting note, um, the, this might be a, a theme to think about um, maybe in later episodes, especially when we start doing uh, human dramas, is that, um, you know, when you think of, as you mentioned in your biography, uh, you know, Gosha, his films deal a lot more with, you know, sort of um, base themes of you know violence and human human um human relationships and whatnot and i think in a way uh his films are you can almost parallel in some ways with uh director uh shohei imamura who was directing around the same time and is kind of known for these sort of you know dealing with more what they call the the lower end themes you know um whereas gosha was you know, born into a working class family, I guess we could say, or at least lower middle class family. You know, Imamura was uh, born into a, a upper middle class family, so their approaches are very different. I think it's, it would be kind of interesting to see now. And they deal with they have different kinds of films too. I mean, like Imamura, I don't think he ever had a, I don't think he ever directed a samurai film, for example. But just dealing with these sort of similar themes, I think it'd be interesting to sort of like contrast the the approaches because um based on um you know how they how the two grew up you know because you could in a way you could say like oh gosha you know his films they could be seen as maybe more authentic in a way because they're dealing with things that he actually experienced while imamura maybe not so you know maybe it's kind of more from his imagination or from things that he's read about or something like that so there's something I just I just want to throw out. Um, maybe it's something that uh, we'll come back to in later episodes. Indeed. Just to end the notes on Samurai Wolf One, it's uh, very straightforward and basic, and uh, you know, you know, the cynicism rears its head, uh, obviously, and uh, there's some line of dialogue with someone that Natsuyagi either fights or just has a dialogue with, uh, where he says, "In five years, you'll be like me," you know, just wandering and being hired to do you know, whatever, to, to survive, and you kind of lose your human- humanity a little bit that way. It doesn't linger on that theme a lot, but it, it, it's there, it's mentioned, uh, and mm. it's sort of twisty-turny, but nothing too complex uh, to follow, and uh, by, by the end point, you get some prime, quite good throughout, really, but towards the end in particular, some primal and cha- chaotic violence, and really nicely choreographed in these, uh, you know, extended takes within these tight quarters, which I, I certainly appreciate, and uh, and and then some samurai code thrown in there where you don't fight an injured man you you or or on unequal terms uh, so uh, but you know nothing truly profound but an effective small scaled tale and uh, I I like based on this movie is how Natsuyagi quite an on performer physically like he uh, he his his look really complements uh, the sort of like samurai wolf he's a wolf well he he looks he looks good for the part I mean and he's on physically like he seemed like a very active actor uh, you know uh, not this uh, fake uh, sort of fake samurai thing that's pasted onto him so i, I liked him and don't forget that uh, samurai wolf 2 has a theme that everyone loves daddy issues <laughs> well the, the thing with samurai wolf 2 for me it felt a lot more muddled to me again i'm, I'm pretty stupid though so uh, but um it, it's the same opening but only a new like title card samurai wolf 2 hellcut so it's like a new episode but we never got a franchise out of this. Maybe they wanted to, but um, there was not uh, 
maybe interest or Gosha or no one really wanted to further this character. I, again, as you said, there's nothing maybe to build on. I, I don't know. Go, go back to Satoichi for a bit. Is that series widely uneven or is it like known to be quite superior all throughout those 20, 30, 40 movies or whatever? Yeah, you know, it's it's always a your mileage may vary type of situation. It's, you know, very subjective. Like, I have probably watched, I don't know if I've watched all of them, but I've watched a good many of them. And some of them are better than others. You know, it's just that's just how it is, you know. Yeah. I mean, there are some where you're kind of thinking, okay, they're starting to jump the shark here. And there's some where you're like, whoa, this is a real fresh take on things, or this is a really solid take on things. But so it's just... You know, everyone, I mean, I know that the, that series is pretty lionized, you know, but I think that, you know, you can't have so many films and not have, you know, some weak ones, you know, or some ones where it feels like, okay, they're phoning this in. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a little movie-making factory for sure with the, with, uh, the Satoichi brand attached to it. Uh, but, but yeah, for the second one, I mean, um, it's, it, again, it's short and we get this, uh, these glimpses into this world, uh, that is again gritty and sort of, uh, no, I, I didn't feel as much of the spaghetti western influence in this one, but maybe I was just used to the world. But, uh, and, and there's further, you know, interesting examples of violence that feel truly violent and not like, as you said, lone wolf and cub. And for me, lone wolf and cub violence is fun. You know, because it's right. it's so over the top, obviously, with the fountains of blood, literally. But these like like slow pushing in of um, you know swords into human bodies and stuff like that. It's really like ooh, it's 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 sometimes hard to take. And uh, <laughs> that's pretty funny uh, reaction you had there. Ooh. Like, oh my stars! <laughs> <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I've never seen violence like this before. But but yeah, it's um it, it it's quite interesting uh, to to see this um contrasted against uh, what the little I know of other samurai movies and its uh, directors. Um, but, but you know, this one had a story that I just, I, I, I had trouble following and therefore trouble caring for the variety of uh, twisted, turny and sort of character relations and all of that and the emotions that came with it. It's sort of just, yeah, that movie happened. Can we have a better part three? But we never got a better part, part three. We never got any part three. But, um, and it seems like, you know, Chiba was super sort of affected by all of what was going on here but I, I don't know about you John but I just felt like no I'm not getting this and I, I don't think it's as strong and uh, very disposable in it and I'll, I'd rather just have the one and move on from that yeah I, I agree for the most part that the story is kind of muddled there's just there are too many characters for so short a time and, and there are there are basically, you know, what, one, two, like three different storylines going on at once. And while it's ambitious, I think it doesn't, uh, I think that uh, Gosha doesn't really handle the all those elements together very well. And, you know, one thing with samurai films that make them really great, and this is probably something that we'll talk more about in 3L All Samurai, is that there's there's usually one element of the story that just cuts through everything, you know, pun intended, I guess. Um you know, whether it's unfair treatment of something or whether it's in the case of Three Outlaw Samurai, which I'll talk about, you know, this concept of universal justice. You know, there's some theme or element that just cuts through the story that tells you, yes, this is what he or they are fighting for, you know. And Samurai Wolf, it's like, you don't really get that. You know, it's like, well, he's fighting because he has daddy issues or he's fighting because, you know, he's, he wants to make some money or he wants fighting because, you know, it, like you said, the story gets so muddled. There's nothing that really drives 
drives the, the story, you know, sing, singularly, which kind of, I think, um, what makes a lot of samurai film, uh, you know, so good for one thing and what makes them so appealing to people. Because if you think of the time, at least for, you know, you know, this is post-war Japan, you know, um, we're dealing with in the fifties and then the sixties, this is, you know, pre-industrial or just about industrial, uh, Japan coming up. And, you know, people are sort of more caught up in, you know, surviving, you know, basically trying to make something of their lives and, you know, working and, you know, you know, and you're kind of following along with the crowd, so to speak, you know, everyone's trying to make money, everyone's trying to, you know, buy cars and stuff like this by the 60s, you know, I think a lot of people kind of lost focus of, um, excuse me, Got so angry right there. Yes, they lost, they lost focus. focus. God damn it. What happened? Focus, damn you people. You know, they lost focus of the one thing, of, you know, of meaning in their life, you know, so to speak. I think a lot of times these samurai films were popular because they did show that there is some meaning to what people do. So, you know, you fight for justice, you fight for comradeship, ship, excuse me. And you fight for these other elements of your social life that your social and political life that are, you know, important. You know, it's not the money. It's not this. It's not that. You know, it's these really important human elements. So mm-hmm. I think that's why they these films and we'll probably talk about that more in later episodes or even during uh, the Three Outlaw Samurai reviews. It's what makes them really popular. Along with the kick-ass fighting, Sorry. of course, of course, yeah, you got to bring in, uh, bring in the balance there, and indeed, yeah, I don't have any other notes on Samurai Wolf Two. It's it's an easily watched but disposable time. So so stick to one. It presents a, a decent view of, uh, of where Gosha seemed to be at the time. Um, uh, so there, there it is. It's not. Um, it's harder to get a hold of um, officially. Um, it's not out on anymore anyway on English subtitle DVD. There was a French. I believe it, it's it's not only a Samurai Wolf set, it's like a Gosha set with a couple of other movies. So it was anyway available, but, but I think you can buy used copies and uh, there are fan-subbed versions of that, which is how we watched it, because the French DVD is not uh, English subtitled. Uh, but uh, So it's a bit hard to uh, get a hold of. Free Outlaw Samurai is not, and we'll get to availability of that, but let's... Uh, Firmly talk of it from beginning to end, so to say. And we jump back in the sort of filmography timeline. Samuel Wolf 1 and 2 is like his uh, third or fourth movie. So fourth or fifth movies. But Free Outlaw Samurai is his first. And back in 1964 we go and plot from the Criterion website. Uh, a wandering scene at all Ronin, played by Tetsuro Tamba, becomes entangled in the dangerous business of two other samurai, played by Isamu Nagato and Mikijiro Hira, and they are hired to execute a band of peasants who have kidnapped the daughter of a corrupt magistrate. And uh, rest is there for you to discover, I suppose. Uh, it's, uh, I'll keep it a sort of a vague plot uh, there. It's uh, essentially what you see in the beginning of the film. That's what the, that plot covers. And uh, then there are some twists along the way. But uh, for the sake of discussion and structure, in short, first of all, John, what do you think of Free Outlaw Samurai? And is this a frequent rewatch or a first watch even? Uh, no, I've I've seen this film several times uh, in the theater and also, you know, on, on home video. Home video. You don't hear that term very often anymore. Um, anyway. Well, 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 you did. You probably did see it on home, home or, or, or you never saw it in VHS days, during VHS days. No, no, I, I didn't see that during the VHS days. 
this is a film that I would say, you know, we just talked about Samurai Wolf 1 and 2. I almost feel like those two films should have been Hideo Gosho's first films because they feel like, they almost feel like they're more working towards something. Yes. And that 3 Outlaw Samurai is more, feels more like a real polished, you know, film when you compare it with some the Samurai Wolf series. You know, of course, it does have some small issues, but I think, like I said before, you know, what makes the film so interesting is not, you know, not only is it a samurai film and not only does it have, you know, elements from a lot of the Kurosawa films that were popular. I mean, you have you have seven samurai, you know, just the fact that you have the number of samurai mentioned, right? Three outlaw samurai, you know, um, you have a little yojimbo in there, you know, where you have the samurai who's kind of pits the two sides against each other. You have the uh, Sanjuro character, kind of that, you know, uh, man with no name type of character that uh, Tetsuro Tamba plays. But like I said, it, there's this real, there's this element that's in there that I think really makes it stand above the Samurai Wolf films in that, you know, there's these elements of, you know, we have the, the Samurai character played by Tetsuro Tamba who's fighting for the peasants and, you know, who have kidnapped the uh, daughter of a magistrate, the town's magistrate. And, um, you know, at, at one point she says, you know, why are you doing this for the peasants? And he says, you know, he basically implies, you know, it's it's for justice. You know, that's the one thing that makes this film shine over at least the Samurai Wolf films is that there is this element that not all Samurai, of course, were honorable, as you can tell in other films, as well as this film. You know, there were ones who were just doing things for money or just doing things for the kicks, so, you know, so to speak. But, you know, you get this element that there is someone who's fighting for this justice. And it's not just human justice. It's, you know, it's universal justice, you know, because, you know, there's also this element of human justice, you know, because like when the magistrate basically, you know, he catches on to the plot and he tries to uh, assassinate the um, the samurai that, uh, that um, Tetsuo is the leader of, as well as the uh, peasants who have kidnapped this woman. You know, there's that element of, you know, just kind of this human justice. Well, they did something bad to me, so I'll do something bad to them. But, you know, what really makes the film shine is that it, it touches on this universal justice of, you know, you cannot treat people badly, you know, even though they are just peasants, you know. At, at one point, I think one of the lines is, you know, peasants are humans too. Yeah, you know? yeah so, it's, it's, it's a very valid, um, clear universal themes indeed and i i think it's um for my short opinion an admiral debut a lot of clear and concrete thoughts in terms of what he wants to present um you know both uh as you know spoken themes and uh, and sort of what he wants his cinema to sort of feel and look like um and, and it's it, as we've learned already from it this wasn't this uh rare occursion into uh, uh, uh not occursion this rare trip into sort of cynicism and sort of a dark gritty version of uh, the chambara world uh, and uh, but so it's a good very good start very honed start and its themes and depth is they're valid and could be rewarding even more rewarding upon further viewing so it's not overwhelmingly like good but it is very good and not too far off from earning like great like, like, yeah exactly i mean i i it wasn't model or anything but i think like this is pretty good but it, i i'm i wouldn't be surprised if it was left off talking of clickbait again a lot of top 10 japanese samurai films lists like like uh it probably isn't always represented there but uh, who knows i haven't read all of them lists because i'm not like, I, I don't know about you john but uh, if someone asked me to compile something top 10 hong kong top 10 category 3 
I hate it. I just hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I guess. People ask me something, and I'll say, "Hey, listen, I'll tell you some good films, but I'm not going to rank them." For exactly. You. <laughs> like I, tomorrow, I'll I'll answer that question in a different manner, probably. Right. So, but um, so as we open the film, like the freeze frame and the title screen, boom, and we see a character step in mud, and it's very stingy. Like the soundtrack is very stingy. Like so, you you wonder to yourself, is this movie going to be in your face? But it isn't. You know, it will get quiet and very matter of fact. So it's just a way to open the movie. But uh, I, I like. I was curious about that. Like, what, what is the style going to be be like here? Uh, I, actually, I like that first opening scene because you know right away. It's almost like with the um, with the Samurai Wolf films that we mentioned. You know, where where it opens up where he's just eating like very sloppily. You know right away it's going to be a dirty film. I mean, dirty not. You know, dirty in the way that, you know, it's not going to be like, you know, they're not going to be like clean samurai fighting each other. You know, this is like getting in your face, you know, gritty type of stuff, you know. Do do you think that's um, imagery, like stepping in the mud and stuff like that? Do, do you think that imagery has sort of survived over years? Uh, because over time, some original imagery back then could be seen as, because it's done so much since then, could be seen as like on the nose today. Do you think uh, stuff like that... Um, uh, because of the movie quality, do you think it survives uh, cliches and all of that that has been established over the years? Yeah, I think so, just because I think a lot of modern samurai films don't feel as gritty as, you know, the older ones. So if if you contrast it, you know, I mean, like, especially when you go into, like, the TV samurai drama, like, um, the was it NHK, which is the, um, basically the uh, Japanese uh, public broadcasting system. It's the it's that arm of uh, of the um, of the well of the government, uh, but um, you know they have a series, a very famous series called the Taiga Drama, which are these you know period pieces, usually samurai oriented. And you know everyone always has very clean kimono, or if if they if they're dirty, it's just like dusty. It's not like mud, you know. It's, mm-hmm. You know, Three Outlaw Samurai it starts off with mud. You know, it's like that's the dirtiest of dirt. You know, so. It kind of gives you that really real indicator that you know, hey, this is not going to be you know like some you know ballet with people with swords. You know, this is going to be like you know getting down and dirty type of stuff. You know, I wonder. I I don't know if you're comfortable answering this or not, but do you think um, Gosha's like view of this world? If you look at old movies we covered in this episode, this gritty but sort of cynical in a way view of the world in um, you know in cinematic form in a way. Do do you think this was? sort of his thing or was he um in a group of directors who looked at things a bit more dark um too i don't think it was just his thing because a lot of these directors who start off post-war you know they start off with this sort of cynical view of life because that's how life was you know i mean like i said post-war you know you know you had the idea of you're still building up the nation or you're rebuilding the nation i should say plus you're industrializing you know because you know not only are we trying to rebuild what we have, but we're trying to push forward too. Not only is that a lot of work, there's this element of, you know, leaving people behind because some people are trained to be laborers, for example, you know, and, you know, they can't be like industrialists, you know, they can't be, you know, these, you know, executives, that kind of thing. So, you know, there's this element of a widening gap of classes, you know, for one thing. But there's also this situation of, you know, hey, I'm just trying to survive myself. You know, I'm just trying to, you know, make a couple bucks just so I can feed my family, that kind of thing. 
you know, on the American side of things, we think, you know, all Americans were the savior of the Japanese and, you know, we basically straightened out that nation after the war. You know, well, think about how much work it takes. I guess you could maybe parallel this with, you know, what what's happening in, for example, Iraq is, you know, all the work it takes to rebuild a nation. You know, it's not – you don't rebuild a nation out of slogans, right? You, you re- rebuild a nation from doing work, from putting things together, from, you know, building things from scratch and that kind of thing. You know, in that kind of environment, it's hard to see what's beyond what's beyond right in front of you, yes. you know, because, you know, hey, I got all this stuff to do. I can't think about God or I can't think about, you know, getting a new car or I can't think about bettering myself as a person because, I, you know, you know what? I got to build a house right here so my family doesn't die, that kind of thing. You know, kind of in a nutshell, I guess, I, I think that's what a lot of these directors were trying to, they're either experiencing themselves or it's what they were trying to capture, you know. Yeah, and and, and it's never overbearing, at least not in this movie. It's not this pitch black, ultra de- depressing, pessimistic view. It's, that's, it's sort of an atmosphere. It's still entertaining, is, yes. It is, it is, very much so. Yeah. W- what we didn't talk of, by the way, is uh, how it all connects to TV. And the problem there is, because this was a TV series, that as far as I read without doing days of research, weeks of research, is that the initial Free Outlaw Samurai series, as you'll find out, listeners, this was actually sort of rebooted in the 70s. But this first one, it's not very available or even verging on the status of Lost. So we can't really, at this point, find out super quickly how this is different from TV. I can just assume that they're sort of restarting it to establish these characters, but maybe... This is not a repeat, and I say maybe, not a repeat of a storyline that was on TV from uh, already, like that viewers were familiar with. The, the, like, like, that is just my theory, that establish the characters, but here's a new story. It's unfortunate that uh, TV studios back then, and even now, I think to a degree, um, were not really respectful of their work and just sort of, they don't bother archiving it, they just reuse a lot of times, like, for example, video and stuff like that. So it's kind of a little disheartening you know movie studios are like that too sometimes especially you know back in the day it, it sort of surprised me because i've gotten always gotten the impression that at least in in certain studios in japan like the preservation was pretty decent like that's why so much stuff gets remastered and released on on disc subsequently but may, maybe it isn't you know supremely good or anything it's just a Relative to some other countries, yeah, sure. I think it is, you know, if you think of places like, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, Malaysia, for example, you know, even now they still have issues archiving. One thing is, you know, you know, how much does a studio care about their holdings? You know, the second thing is you can have product that's stuck in licensing hell, for example, and who's the real owner of it, that kind of thing. But another thing, too, is that there are things like... um conditions you know like for example weather takes a a factor into that you know you know weather can really destroy things like video you know like you know i mean southeast asia we're talking about hot humid that kind of thing you know that can really age the media that you're saving your film onto so you know not only are you dealing with you know these kind of human factors but you're also dealing with these you know environmental factors when it comes to archive yeah being a hong kong fan and taiwanese film fan that's something you have to just accept that it's not going to get better anytime soon especially in taiwan it's just uh it, they were talking just two minor specialized cinema there that you know like now we think oh it's so cool you know all these great old movies and stuff back then they didn't give a shit 
it's just entertainment. You know, it's like put it out in the theater and then, you know, when it's done, you know, we'll throw it in a closet. So they didn't think like, you know, oh, Hideo Gosha, he's going to be put on Criterion someday. You know, they just thought, hey. Who's, who's Criterion? Believe me. They will, yeah. they will come to be. <laughs> Essentially, they just thought, you know, hey, it had its run. You know, it's not going to make any more money. It was thrown in the closet. Many years later, they kind of realized, hey, you know, Gosha, he was a pretty solid director. We should put stuff out in videos. Not as bad as that article alluded to. He's pretty smart. You know, film fans, we lionize a lot of film and we think, oh, how could you destroy that? You know, we get that finger wagging mode, you know, mm-hmm. how could you destroy that? Well, it's because back then they didn't, they didn't really think too much about that. You know? exactly. Just like, there's like, whatever, made a few bucks and now. No, we'll... Not all were Disney. Right. I have a couple of the the old like Disney Laserdisc box sets, and they just saved everything, man. Every piece of art that they ever did, like full storyboards from like unmade animated movies and stuff like that, it all was saved. The thing is, though, they could afford to do that. Yes, that's true. You know, one thing is they had a philosophy. You know that Disney equals this. You know, Disney equals kids. You know, and of course they had the space to save that stuff, and they had the people to that they could pay to take care of that stuff you know when you're thinking about you know a little vietnamese indie film studio you know that why are you out that yeah because they're the worst (laughs) yeah i mean you're lucky if you have any space to to put that item for sure uh, let's go on to into the movie uh, as I didn't know anything of it I've not seen it before so it's, it presents like uh, interesting threads in terms of how, where's this going to go because you have the kidnapping scenario we're thrown right into it and if I remember correctly Tetsuro Tamba's character is not you know initially helping out this person he's sort of like well I'm, I'm hired and uh, what whatever you do what's that going to change in the long run he's the one that changes quite quickly though that's that's the Yojimbo element of the story where he's kind of like pitting one side against the other and then he pits the other side against it, you know. So it's he's kind of playing around with the situation, trying to get a feel for. Exactly. And it really is co- compelling because, um, you know, he, he seems to coach the kidnappers. Like, if you do this, like, go check outside. And they, yes, we will go check outside. But if you leave her unguarded, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. like they're, they're, right. they're not comical like that, but they are sort of desperate and they're emotional and he's sort of the one that sort of coaches them. Uh, it's, it's the term I, I suppose um, uh, is, is apt to use. And th- that's intriguing characteristics for the movie early, you know, calm versus distraught. And it's part of the movie. It's almost this micro movie. Like uh, I always almost thought that is this going to be set all in the barn. And, and that's a good thought, uh, a, a compelling thought, because I like even newer movies that just sets is set in one room or whatever like um uh, phone booth comes to mind like i i like phone booth i like the concept of something so micro and how you sort of execute using just minor minor characters and minor settings uh, free outlaw samurai it isn't grand and epic in feel everything is sort of like so claustrophobic and ominous as uh it may be widescreen but it's not a widescreen epic with grand vistas of Desperate peasants, you know, kidnapping the the magistrate's uh, daughter. It's pretty um, tight and um, ominous and, uh, as I said, dark, sort of dark and um, verging on cynical, which is all throughout pretty compelling, I think. Right. Especially when you get into the uh, magistrate's dungeon, you know, um, you know, Tetsuro Tama's character is, you know, um, he basically sacrifices himself for, for the peasants because, you know, he feels that, uh, you know, that's kind of what he should do. 
and even characters are lit from like underneath and stuff like that giving that almost like gothic horror look almost like yeah. A, yeah or yeah or noir type of feel yeah yeah definitely he's at first tortured and he's thrown into a, a prison cell so you know i also thought that um dungeon of the magistrates was very uh, claustrophobic you know and everything that goes in there is very like even when shot wide it's 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 claustrophobic even when shot this wide which is kind of cool like you almost you always think that that scope frame that's going to give you space but that that's not how gosha and his cinematographer conceive it it's going to feel very tight so i uh, do, do you remember that feeling from watching it in cinemas as well like on the big screen but still tight right yeah i mean that's I think if you watch it on the big screen, you know, which I have again, um, you know, you you really get that feel for it. You know, watching, of course, at home in the living room, you know, you're just sort of, you know, relaxing on the couch. You maybe you don't feel as much, you know, but but yeah, yeah, definitely on the big screen. I think that really... in, in what uh, context did you watch it on the big screen? Was it a festival thing, retrospective thing or did it uh, play? Uh, did it have a run? Yeah, it was at a festival maybe about six years ago, and it was just it was like a samurai retrospective. They were, they played like about six different films, and this happened to be one of them. And this was the one of the ones that I hadn't seen on the big screen. I hadn't seen in very good definition at all. In fact, I think I'd only seen it uh, like on maybe it was like a, a torrent or something before that. But uh, so that was the one I was definitely looking forward to seeing. And, Maybe this was before Criterion even had it. I don't. I'm not sure they even did a laser disc of it. Maybe it was DVD. That was the first time they sort of got hold of it. But uh, I, I think so. Yeah, I think DVD was the that was the first time it was on DVD. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah. Cr- Criterion sort of like they keep rights for certain movies, and, and they've been they've done all formats they can. You know, from laser disc up until Blu-ray. Like they still got Seven Samurai, for instance. It was on laser disc, DVD, and now Blu-ray. So uh, they, they they do keep a uh, hold of properties that uh, make money. In terms of um, action and sword play and things like that, they, it, if you watch Samurai Wolf before or after, there's recognizable traits here. And uh, they are compelling traits as well. It's not as violent as uh, Samurai Wolf, but these um, short to-the-point sword play scenes are really effectively conveyed. You don't get these um, sort of now cliche, but, you know, long build-ups towards mm-hmm. fights in these Gosha movies at least like they're like characters draw swords at the drop of hat and there's violence like boom we're in which is is a nice alternate view for someone like me who isn't familiar with a lot of different interpretations of of the genre as an action piece when it does settle into action for a little bit still very compelling and um the way japanese cinema you know did action meant that a lot of performance it did it themselves like you don't see a lot of extensive stunt doubling of this action because it's not it doesn't require a high level of martial arts like a, like a hong kong movie would require you know right and actually you know when you think of it the most of the brutal scenes probably involve don't involve swords one example is like i said the torture scene where where tetsuo tama's character has to endure 100 wax from the club i guess it was so that, that was pretty excruciating you know it's like you know i mean we get to witness at least 20 of those hits you know and it's just like okay isn't that enough you know it's kind of it again that's kind of an echo back to uh, yojimbo because his character also has to endure that um that that same sort of punishment and, and it's also a kind of excruciating is it like an echo that is that makes it too familiar or is it like an echo where like like it's not uh, repeating a piece of celluloid that was already 
done does it feel unique on its own within the context of this movie having a similar scene like that yeah that's a good question for me it, it kind of felt familiar you know i was like oh Yojimbo, check Yojimbo again yeah <laughs> i only say this because i saw it i watched Yojimbo a couple months ago so that you know it's still somewhat fresh in my head you mm-hmm. know if there had been you know three or three year gap between uh, those watches then I, I probably wouldn't have maybe thought about it so much you know so you know it just depends your again your mileage may vary as usual right yeah yeah it all depends on when you think of this movie too like if you dislike this movie then maybe a scene like that oh my god rip off rip off yeah finger wagging it's, it's not bruce exploitation it's akira <laughs> exploitation the clones of jojimbo <laughs> it's a new genre i just made up Fast forward 10 years, it's going to happen. Like, God damn it, I didn't trademark <laughs> yeah. that crap. Seven samurai? Eight samurai? What? Why didn't they do that? Like, like, they, like, weren't they like the lowest of low exploitation filmmakers in Japan where they sort of like, nine samurai, that's our movie. Ha! <laughs> like, get it out there. Make it in two weeks and get it out there. Were, were there like low exploitation filmmakers like that today? So, were respectful. There were sort of. Not really, though. I, I don't think... Um... Where you get like someone called uh, T- Toshiro Mifune, but something s- almost Toshiro Mifune, like give him a stage name. <laughs> like that sounds like Toshiro Mifune, but isn't like a look like <laughs> Joe Mifune. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I-, I think it's more like you know, and I'd hate to because I-, I think any comment you make at this point is going to sound like stereotyping between the, the between the Chinese and the uh, Japanese. But I think there's probably less of a need to. Um, copy like wholesale like that obviously you know there are some you know videos movies whatever that you know are parodying you know things like seven samurai or other uh akira kurosawa films but you know parody is a lot different from you know copy you know that kind of thing i think there's a lot less of that in uh, uh japanese cinema than there is in like hong kong or chinese cinema you know and again you know, it may sound like, you know, oh, it's because the Chinese like to make fun of things or whatever. Nah, you know, nah, nah. I mean, uh, there's, you know, that's a global thing. I mean, uh, when something is hot, then the iron is going to be struck, you know, so to say. Right. And, uh, whether in an exploitation fashion or to take it into sort of a unique vision with some thought and focus. Like, exploitation filmmakers, they make it and shoot it quickly. Thought and focus requires the train to move a little bit slower. Right. And, you know, we are talking about three outlawed samurai, by the way. And, you know, another film that a lot of uh, your listeners might uh, might know that also sort of can be kind of wrapped up in that sort of not copy, but sort of emulate sort of styles, you know, 13 Assassins, which was recently uh, remade by um, uh, Takashi Miike. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the original, which was I, I can't remember what year it was, but it must have been the maybe... Must have been back in the early '60s. I'll look it up and talk at the same time. Uh, but the original, again, you have the thirteen, the number, and you have, you know, they're not samurai, but they're you know assassins. But you know, it's like it's still kind of copying that theme, you know, of there being you know a certain group of people that are, are going to do something. In the case of thirteen assassins, they're actually trying to um, kill a uh, a particularly uh, sadistic feudal lord. So, um, yeah, so the original 13 Assassins, which was directed by uh, Eiichi Kudo, um, it was uh, put out in 1963. So around the same time, again, emulating. We're not copying the style. We're just sort of emulating the popularity of, you know, the simplicity of that title. You know, Seven Samurai. It's very direct, right? 
13 assassins, very direct, you know, three outlaw samurai, very direct. You, there's no question of what you're going to see on the, on the screen. There's a second scene, again, not involving swords that's particularly violent, that I'm trying to wonder how they filmed. It's the scene where Tamba's character is sort of like, at that point, you know, he's, he's been you know, beat up, he's been put in the dungeon, you know, he escapes the dungeon, he's sort of chilling out at that point. Then there's a man from the magistrate who he's sort of, he hasn't befriended, but he sort of has somewhat, he has less suspicion of. And he starts talking to him, and then in a previous scene, we realize that um, the magistrate, magistrate's daughter, who sort of has taken a liking to Tamba, she basically marks this man as being, hey, well, she, I guess, you know, go along with the theme that we had of, of, of hairpins is, you know, she sticks a hairpin into his, the guy's hat mm-hmm. to sort of tip off Tamba that, hey, this is not a person you want to trust, right? When they meet, you know, they're just sitting there and then Tamba, it's not shown on, on screen, but Tamba does see that hairpin. He realizes what's, he's being set up. He makes this remark to the guy. He's like, well, how would a lone person be able to you know, go back to the magistrate and the guy who Thomas talking about, he realized, Oh shit, you know, the dude, you know, Thomas on to me, you know? So Thomas picks up this like bundle of sticks that are all that are, that have been lit on fire. I guess it's like maybe like a torch of some sort. He smashes the guy over the head. And I'm just wondering how did they film that? Because it looks like he lands the hit really hard. <laughs> there's a bundle of sticks that's lit on fire too and i'm thinking you know not only do you, have, do you have the weight of the sticks but you also have the you know they're on fire too so maybe a particular game actor you know <laughs> like that it's the only way we're gonna convey this just hit me maybe yeah like give me a few extra bucks you know to take this hit or something but yeah i just thought you know you know nowadays that would have to be a cg shot easily but, you know, back then it's like, God, yeah, I guess that guy must have said that. He just said, just go ahead and hit me. Don't worry about it. You know, just. I'm going to be here forever if you don't. I should have paid my insurance or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah but, but yeah, there, there are some cruel violence here. I mean, and even, even torture, as you alluded to, there's uh, this um, scene earlier in the movie where they have daughter outside the um, the farmhouse and they're sort of like tossing her back and forth. Yeah. And like, yeah, mm-hmm. really, it, it's not this movie infused with violence against women necessarily, but there, there is, there, there's a grit here where that, that adds to, I suppose, this, uh, this setting and this atmosphere. And that includes, uh, some violence against, uh, the, the kidnappee, uh, in this case. Uh, well, there was a, I think there was far less violence than, you know, there might be in a film that was made like let's say 10 years later like you know 1976 or something like that you know like once you get to that territory i mean you would expect something like rape of some sort you know yeah yeah the well once the pink uh genre in the movies uh came flying out and then game on then 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 there was in the title what you were (laughs) what was going to happen in the movie like uh, our buddy josh uh, is a fan of uh, some of these movies that in the english titles anyway you have the the word rape in there in there and right. essentially like there's a movie called and then everybody gets raped like what's that gonna be about <laughs> they're, they're putting it on front straight but uh but you know in terms of uh you know the whole uh theme of uh standing up for peasants and all of that in in the end without spoiling it it's it's very sim set up in a very simple way very coherent and approachable way and i i don't know how much you know, this was Gosha's thing or not. Uh, I, I guess I'll find out in subsequent movies if in his movies he'd like to stand 
up for the small smaller man so to say but it's it's really it's really affecting i'm trying to be a delicate here because i don't want to spoil it because when all is said and done this is not necessarily a ha- an happy ending movie it's uh when all is said and done this uh, rebellion this rise and uh, that seems to go very well like it's uh, we, we we have a change on our hands it sort of deflates a couple of characters um and and I guess that that's a major spoiler. I don't know, but I I still thought that was uh, affecting. Without it wasn't this uh, dark just for the sake of dark and overbearing. It was unexpected. I really thought that was um, well done. Where essentially where they they come to a conclusion. Where, where what was that all for then? If we don't want to go further, I guess I should sh- shut up now and say I, I thought that was affecting. I guess I guess you know to spoil it from a conceptual angle you know you can't help those who can't help themselves you know i guess that that's sort of a was it is it christian or catholic precept you know god helps those who help themselves right so it's that same sort of concept you know that goes for both the peasants as well as you know the the daughter because you know uh there's you know in the second to last scene where he tries to um basically get revenge on the magistrate you know he finds that uh the daughter defends him, you know, out of all the bad things that he's done. And, you know, she's even worked against uh, her father, you know, in several points of the film, you know, but she still says, you know, no matter what, you're still my father. Tamba sort of realizes at that point that, you know, she is doing what he did for the peasants and what she did for him as well. So it's kind of like, you know, it's a little twisted, but it's not kind of like he feels like, well, she understands now what it's like to be human, you know, rather than being, you know, a, you know, she's daughter, she's the daughter of a magistrate, you know, she's probably used to being, you know, um, spoiled and, you know, don't have to deal with people and, you know, oh, this dirty, awful peasants, you know, that kind of thing, you know, but now she, now he understands that, you know, she's enlightened, I guess, so to speak. And I guess that's uh, so, sort of a set up for subsequent adventures that never happened, happened either in movie form anyway, <laughs> where like they, they use, I suppose disappointments in a way to sort of color the characters. You would think like they'd walk on with that experience in mind and you can create new drama based on that. But uh, as far as I know, there was no additional free outlaw samurai movie unless they, they there was they no reboot. four outlaw samurai. No, no, exactly. There was that no too. three outlaw samurai to yeah. not a gritty reboot because this was already <laughs> already great. That ending also was sort of an echo of Yojimbo because I think I think it's Yojimbo um, where it's a similar thing where it's like you know oh so where where are we gonna go you know that kind of thing and it just throws a stick up in the air and it's like that way. I mean the film can't really escape you know, being somewhat of a Kurosawa copy, although it does deal with some themes very, very well and very strongly, you know, maybe not as equal to the way that Kurosawa could treat them, but, uh, but still in a way that I think makes the film shine above just a typical down and dirty, uh, samurai film. And they're not really outlaws either. That's, uh, an interesting point. Like these are not full, like in and out bad people like they they change and one of them the third one uh changes really really late like the third outlaw samurai is the one that you think is all on the so to say away team the on the magistrate side because he's the one that all throughout just i'm like what you're doing is useless like standing up to magistrate pretty useless i'm gonna stand here and just use the plane chips that is given to me and take advantage of 
of that. Um, but 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 really, they're not outlaw uh, as such. If you go by the English word outlaw in the title, that's why I don't really love the title because, as you mentioned, the direct translation of the title would be like three animal samurai or three you know samurai beasts, you know that kind of thing. It sounds a little more like, you know, again, it's that bring out the down and dirty, gritty element of the film. Yeah, Outlaw kind of posits them as being like good or bad, you know, that kind of thing. In a way, they are outlaws because they are aiding in in defying the magistrate. So I guess you could say that they're outlaws. But then again, they're doing what's right. They are uh, fighting for universal justice. You know, that, that doesn't make you an outlaw, right? So it's kind of, again, that translation is not the best, although I think for the purpose of it sounding good, you know, just the the fact that it rolls off your tongue, you know, three outlaw samurai, you know, I think that fits, you know. I, sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, it, it it sort of triggered an interest in me that, it, per definition, they're they're not, you know, they're not villains, they're not bandits, right? And 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 right. each take, Tetsuro Tamba's character sort of transforms and picks sides. Pretty early on, the uh, middle character, I'm going to go back to the actor's name, um, that I think is Isamo Nagato, changes pretty quickly as well when he realizes that he's hired to kill peasants. And he was a peasant as well, so boom, he's on the, he's on the other side. And he's more emotional out of the, out of the trio. If I may, that's actually something <laughs> that's uh, sort of copied over. <laughs> Here we go. Just damning damning this movie one one cliche <laughs> by by the... it's actually uh toshiro mifune's character he it's revealed that he's not really samurai he's more he was a farmer but he's sort of like in between in a way you know he wasn't made a samurai so so i think they were trying to sort of again uh reference that character although the two characters from the standpoint of looking at them as characters, they're very completely different characters. You know, Tetsuro Mifune's character is kind of like hyperactive and really like jubilant and that kind of thing. And and uh, Isama Nagato's character is more, you know, he's more laid back. He has this real sense of honor. He, he looks like the kind of samurai that uh, sort of just went into being a samurai because he still looks, you know, he doesn't look paint, uh, like colored by his experiences. He doesn't look like a killing machine. You know, uh, right. necessarily. So I, I thought it was good casting in that regard. And 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 again, this is the trio from TV. If I understood things correctly, in the same roles, uh, so uh, they they were familiar to some extent with uh, with the roles, whether they had done them for a season or two years or whatever. I think though, if you look at actually, if we look at all three characters, you know, I mean, I guess Tetsuro Thomas' character comes off as being the more slightly more complex, but they're all kind of playing types, you know. Sure. And, you know, I mean, I know that uh, Kurosawa's samurai characters also were playing types. I mean, the seven samurai, they're all distinctive in some way. You know, there's a strong, tough guy and there's the more strategic, you know, um, smarter guy. And then there's the, you know, the wild card, crazy character, you know. So they all kind of play these types. And, you know, these types, of course, started would influence you know anime and stuff like that you know a lot of people who are into anime can probably look back at a lot of these films and say like oh my god that's just like such and such you know i don't know as your listeners probably know well i'm not as familiar with anime as i am with live action stuff but but i think of course i think the problem is that you know they rely a little too much on type sometimes um you know like you said there's that you know isamu nagato's character you know he doesn't seem like if you looked at him you, you wouldn't think he's a samurai and you know obviously you know he has a different he's come from a, comes from a different stock than other kind of samurai he's a, you know he's formerly a farmer that kind of thing 
we don't really see him grow. I mean, obviously, you know, we know that he's an honorable person, that he he's not the kind of person who will do as he should. He does as he must, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we know this kind of from the beginning. <laughs> I mean, as soon as as soon as we I mean, when we first meet him, we just think, OK, he's just a samurai from hire. But like you said, in that one scene where he's fighting the uh, peasants, you know, he realized, wait a second. I was a peasant too, so I'm going to convert. That's the only real change we see in his character, you know. I mean, there's a little romantic angle uh, from a woman in his past, and but we don't really see a lot of change. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of torn between love and uh, the code and the moral, I suppose. But uh, right. it's not uh, a through line that goes on in each and every scene for him it's um so, right. so yeah i i, I kind of kept forgetting when thinking of all his scenes like forgetting the sort of romantic angle that he had because i don't think it was extensively in the film as such I me mean, a couple a couple of scenes i think it has one of the the best moments in the film there's one f- moment where he realizes uh he's trying to run away with uh the, that woman you know they've he's basically snitched that you know uh there's a what would they call that day um there's that document that they're looking for. It's not a proposition, <laughs> but it's basically something. Oh, it's a petition. Excuse me. It's a petition that they're going to present to the Lord. That basically that says that the, you know the magistrate has been a real jack off, and you know, hey, we got to do something about <laughs> this. You know? From 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 old timey Japanese language, like this jack yeah, exactly. jack off. Okay, just remember that. Okay, and that the Criterion subtitles didn't get right. I didn't see a jack off <laughs> in the subtitles. So, well, that's because I didn't write them. Okay, <laughs> exactly. Um, he has basically snitched on the peasants and told the magistrate where the um where the petition is and the reason he's done that is because you know basically they've been they've kidnapped his love interest and you know they basically offered him they said hey we'll let you both go and we'll give you guys money if you just tell us where that petition is so he does that you know as you know probably most normal human beings would do i would guess and then you know they're running off he realized you know what i fucked up I got to go back and I got to, I got to, I got to fight for my boys. So to speak. so he says to the woman, he says, Hey, listen, you take the money, you go away, you'd be happy. He doesn't say it, but you know, if I ever survive, maybe I'll find you later, you know, that kind of thing. And then while he's running away, you know, she says, no, stop, stop, stop. And then, you know, she says, you know, to him, I love you. And then he stops just for a moment and he realizes, you know, like I said, I think this is probably the best scene in the film because he realizes that this is, I think the, um, excuse me, not only best scene, but uh, also really shows his character that he realizes that he's giving up, you know, that real happiness that he's been looking for, but because he has duty, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's important. It was important for Samurai, you know, to have a sense of duty and uh, obeying to that duty, you know? So I guess maybe this character is probably not the best example I should have brought up of characterization because I think this is the one character that we see characterization well, 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 he he does stand out. You know, it's not the uh, the poor out of the trio or anything. I think uh, there, there's some decent, you know, amount of uh, characteristics all throughout the trio that you pick up on, and that presents a hook for the movie. That uh, we're invested in the movie because of that, and uh, and and as 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 we alluded to, uh, and it's sort of the tail end of my notes. Uh, by the end, it's sort of like having the rug pulled out underneath underneath you if you go by conventions but it's earned i think yeah, the places it goes and uh, i was uh, you know in a fair world this uh, could have been expanded upon a little more maybe did on tv but uh, in movies um, 
this was sort of the last of the three outlaw samurai that we saw. But uh, on, on its own, a uh, little piece of adventure, little slice. It's not uh, long either. It's a bit over 90 minutes. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it is recommended without being the overwhelming classic out of, out of the genre. There are two other films. Well, there's not only, of course, Samurai Wolf, uh, Samurai Wolf 2, but there are a couple of other films that came after Three Outlaw Samurai uh, that, uh, that uh, were also Samurai films that uh, Gosha directed. Uh, Sword of the Beast, which is also on Criterion, and Secret of the Urn was recently released by... I forget who it was on DVD. Um, Secret of the Urn is a little closer to Samurai Wolf. It's a little more entertainment. It has to do with uh, a character that's kind of uh, uh, traditionally um, been a character named uh, Tang- Tange Sazen, I think, if I remember correctly, who has he's sort of like a, a film slash literary character who's who's been you know handed been handed down by different directors and actors and that that kind of uh, figure. It's kind of interesting that um, again that Three Outlaw Samurai is his is, is first film and and if you look at the at least these early films you know it's really kind of his best <laughs> in terms of you know dealing with those sort of um, human themes I think than the other films do. The Secret of the Urn is is way more like entertaining. I mean there are some human elements to it, but uh, it's a little bit closer to Samurai Wolf than it is to Three Outlaw Samurai. In fact, I, I would highly recommend it. I was actually going to choose that film over possibly one of the Samurai Wolves for this episode just because it's that character, like I said, uh, he's very important in Japanese um, literary and film culture. You know, in a way, if you look at... Uh, what's the name of uh, Johnny Depp's character in this... Um, in Pirates of the Caribbean movies, uh, Jack Jack Sparrow, right? Right. I could not answer that at all. Like, I, I, he's been in those movies. There are about eight of them. I, he's, yeah. pretty, he's pretty funny in the first one. I didn't. Yeah, there's one with the like a octopus face guy. Um, but anyway, his character in the film, and I know I know you haven't seen the film, but um, at least the first film I've seen, and his character, you know, he's a very flamboyant type of you know entertaining character. You know, his character has a lot of echoes back to, I think, the Secret of the Urns, uh, uh, Tange Sazen character, um, you know, very flamboyant, very entertaining type of character. You know, I, I would definitely recommend it. I, I don't know if we're going to uh, cover the film in any of these episodes, but uh, if you can get your hand on it. It is out there and just to, to um, get a check of um, who did the release it, it was Animeko. Oh, yes. Thanks. Yes. I was thinking some anime distributor, but I can't. I don't like. <laughs> but uh, they did good at least once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They they actually put out a lot of good um, uh, live action stuff. Those guys. Amigo. Yeah. Should we talk availability then? Because uh, that's uh, like, like n- normally when I talk Hong Kong movies, it's, it's often like when especially vintage, it's often very depressing. They're not available anymore. They were on DVD, not anymore. But this one is in the US anyway. It's widely available as part of the Criterion Collection on a rather featureless DVD and Blu-ray. I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. And it's also available to stream for Hulu Plus subscribers. The Hulu Plus now has the Criterion Collection, I think, exclusively on their streaming service. It used to be on Netflix many years ago. Netflix, I think, still has some of their films and also uh, Fandor some as well. So it's not exclusive, although Criterion does put out a lot of exclusive stuff on the uh, Hulu Plus Criterion whatever holdings. Mm. Uh, 
Uh, in fact, they'll put out stuff in advance of the DVD and Blu-ray releases. Yeah, like for example, there's a bunch of David Cronenberg stuff. Uh, not David Cronenberg, excuse me. Uh, David David Lynch stuff. Right. So, so maybe like Mulholland Drive appeared on Hulu Plus uh, before their Blu-ray dropped and stuff. Okay. Right. A lot of a lot of the Japanese films appear on the Hulu Plus page before. I mean, there's a ton of actually a ton of stuff right now that's on the Hulu Plus uh, Criterion um, holdings that are not on DVD yet. And you, and occasionally you can rent uh, on iTunes a Criterion title or two. I I did uh, some for some what's Korean cinema episodes. I've been able to rent like the housemaid I rented. But um, when I looked into other Criterion titles of Korean movies on iTunes, uh, they weren't there. I, I think there were only two Korean films on in the Criterion. Uh, maybe the housemaid and Secret Sunshine. So oh, by the way, like, like I rented both of them, but it was another movie that. I did for another show that wasn't Criterion, but you can rent on iTunes. So it's not uh, given that you can rent Criterion titles on iTunes. It's a case case by case basis kind of thing. Uh, but uh, going back to the Blu-ray, it's uh, I mean it's a it's a good transfer and um, uh, good subtitles and uh, a, and a good booklet, very good booklet that sort of is a good like insight into the the themes and style of Gosha. They're very well written. I don't have the Blu-ray in front of me now, so. Uh, uh, I don't have the gentleman's name who wrote the essay, but um, there, there's no special features. So, but the trailer is fun to see. So, and that is posted by Criterion themselves on YouTube. It starts with uh, this sort of filmed um, ceremony at maybe the Chochico Studios, where some head of the production of a studio hands uh, Tetsuro Tamba a sword or or a box of some kind and kind of give like handing like uh, the baton or like giving him the mantle of now you're now you know <laughs> you're now the samurai hero uh, at our studio i don't know if it's a common ceremony but the other actors are there and you also see brief behind the scenes footage of gosha directing swordplay so it, it's one of those trailers that it features a little bit of that that stuff which is always fun um to see and 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 I mentioned to you, it's sort of mildly connected, but um, a couple of the toy animation titles always had what I presume was the toy boss. And not always, but in the case of a few movies like Alakazam, they had the toy boss interacting with the main animated character that's uh, in the movie. So they promoted it that way, and I always enjoy trailers that step out of the movie to sort of say hello. We're here to present the movie. There's one thing I want to mention is that uh, a lot of trailers for japanese films uh back in like the the 60s and whatnot they're really different from western trailers you know western trailers it's usually the case you know we get idea of who the characters are we get some little bit of story you know we get a little you know teaser here and there you know oh my god what's happening that kind of thing let's go see the film you know the the kind of clickbait sort of material like we were just talking about earlier japanese film trailers sometimes are like i'll watch them and i'll be like what (laughs) like (laughs) Am I supposed to be interested in this or something? You know, it's like they're very like I don't know. Especially if you've actually seen the film, because if you actually see the if you've actually seen a film, you know what makes it attractive, right? It's like oh, it's got this actor and it's got this sort of story, you know, and oh my god, it has blood too, you know, that kind of thing. And sometimes if you watch that corresponding trailer to it, you're looking at it you're like probably wouldn't have been interested in watching this film if I hadn't seen it already, you know. So I don't know. Maybe it's sort of some difference in philosophy or just some different way of thinking about how the film should be presented like just pick put big letters on screen and hope we'll get audiences that some way. of the trailers feel like that it's like they'll they'll flash on the scene and they'll say like 
big excitement. You know, it's like, what's big about it? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's a small movie. It's set in one room. What's big excitement about this? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they do it for that trailer. It's kind, of, it's kind of amusing because it's like, Tetsuro Tamba to the screen and the free little outlaw samurai on the screen, like emotional, emotional, like big <laughs> action. And, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, tra- me and trailers are like, I, I don't really get sold on modern trailers modern movies and their trailers nowadays i if i'm interested it's usually because of the plot synopsis because uh, trailers have go, grown so standardized in editing and structure especially for event pictures but the smaller movies are especially the trailers that spoil the story you know it's like i mean some of the trailers you can you just watch them you're like i bet you that's a spoiler right there it's like i think you guys messed up by putting that in there you know so there it is, uh, but it, it's uh, it's not too expensive. Uh, so go pick it up either on DVD and Blu-ray, uh, d- despite the featureless uh, disc. Um, and, and if you are subscribed to Hulu Plus, it's probably watchable in quite good quality, even if it's not HD per se. Next time, well, this series isn't fully plotted yet, as we got a lot of career to follow and cover. But we want to give you the best overview, as I said that we can without being here forever so uh, with the help of coffee john i will pick new movies for main review versus quick takes and announce them soon enough but uh, for now uh, it's uh, not uh, all structured we'll do one episode at a time and uh, get back to each other in eight months or so and uh, do episode two (laughs) so but uh, i'm sure you have some ideas uh, john Uh, you know i know for a fact that since it was the movie i watched and started to Ooh, i like this what's the name of that director you know he took care or attention that one is going to come up whether it's second episode or third episode because i don't remember it was it was 60s i think and it was color but or maybe it was early 70s i don't remember six i think that uh you know gosha was prolific enough where you know we don't have to stick with only samurai you know we yeah can, of course we can of go course. back and forth between his human dramas and he also has a number of yakuza films and also some films that are, are more focused on uh, females, female characters, so that be kind of interesting to sort of go back and forth on this uh, timeline rather than you know attacking stuff from just a linear. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Of course, I I, I thoroughly agree. I think uh, just for the sake of um, I don't know, I I liked Hitokiri enough where I want to include it, whether we combine it with something modern or or not. Uh, because uh, I, if anything, I think it mm, this might come true when all is said and done when i've watched like a snapshot of his shambara stuff that hitokiri might be the culmination of like all experiences gathered and this is how it came off the best like uh, it, i know i like it but it's going to be interesting to watch it again with uh, this uh this in my sales so to say the experiences of samurai wolf free outlaw samurai and so forth uh all right let's uh do the brief contact information and sign off and this has been japan on fire on the podcast on fire network Check this show out on our website, podcastofire.com, along with all the other shows on various uh, countries, cinema, Hong Kong, Korea, and so forth. And uh, we have bonus episodes exclusive to the website up there as well. Podcastonfire at googlemail.com is our email. Uh, leave, us a, leave us a note about uh, what you think of the series and uh, Gosha in general. And uh, if you follow the little links, uh, the buttons on our website at the top of the page, you'll get our Facebook page, our discussion group, as well as our Twitter, links to our Stitcher page. And Stitcher also has applications available on the Apple App Store and Google Play, so you can stream 
the podcasts and uh, you have iTunes links as well so rate and subscribe and even if you if you have the time Robert please leave a written note and uh, let us know what you think of uh, the network and Japan on fire and my Hong Kong cinema Taiwanese cinema Godfrey Ho cinemas Lisa cinema writing over at is over at sogoodreviews.com my video reviews uh, is at lisakvideo.com and my Twitter handle is at sogoodreviews and uh, you'll get the final final plug uh, V cinema so where are you and uh, what are you doing over there? Like, what's your official position? Because I, I gather you don't write as much anymore. Uh, barely at all, just because I don't have the time. I have a job in which I have to commute 40 miles every day. So that's basically, I'm out of the house 14 hours a day, basically. So yeah, I don't I don't get much chance. And, you could, and I'm sure people will say, well, you can write on the train or something. On the train is when I need to relax. So. <laughs> I call myself the official podcasting arm of uh, of uh, the V Cinema website, um, just because I, I think uh, do you still you still do podcasts with Josh, right? I I don't really keep up with podcasts as much as I should. So Josh, I guess, could be seen as uh, as half of that podcasting arm of uh, of V Cinema, although he does have his own website. But um, anyway, yeah, I guess I'm the podcasting arm of V Cinema, or half of it, whatever. And then um, John Barra, Dr. John Barra, um, he's a professor who uh, lives out in China. He does the main um, uh, editor-in-chief duties over at uh, V Cinema at the moment. Uh, so um, he's gathered up um, some of our old writers as well as uh, some new people and basically putting out a bunch of film reviews. And again, that's at vcinemashow.com. We're also on Twitter. Uh, same thing, V Cinema Show, V Cinema S H O W, and then we are um, we're on Facebook too. Those are basically our main three uh, avenues to get in touch with us. And if there's any indication that this episode is over, you know my uh, cat is sitting on the windowsill right now and just nodding off slowly. So um, I think that's a, I think that if anything, that's a sign, uh, Kenneth. Well, we're happy that the cat does not step on the effing router or. <laughs> Pull the plug as it has at one point. Uh, well, pull the plug. The cat did take out the power at one point before we even started. Like we don't approve. We, you're talking to the Swedish guy again because of that situation. My my wife gave me like a, a, a like a cap from something. It's like just a cover, and I can put it over the power button. So <laughs> we are safe. Like, uh, you you outsmarted the cat, John. Yes. Con- congratulations. Yes. Once again, there it is. Well, thank you very much, anyway, Coffin Joe, for uh, for uh, for the introduction to to Gosha, the proper introduction, and uh, we'll see you for the next episode in the series. So I've been Kenneth, and with me was Coffin Joe. So say bye bye, bye bye, later's. <laughs>